We are live. Welcome to the EOS podcast, my EOS friends. I am recently back from the San Francisco Hackathon, and it is picking up the pieces here at the EOS podcast and getting back into the flow. Um, we've got Alex from EOS Canada, and this is a uh, I, I'm really excited about this conversation. He's going to give us a lot of uh, tech angles that you may not know. So, Alex, uh, welcome to the show, and uh, go Thank ahead and you. introduce yourself. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, well, so uh, some pipe, some people might know me. I'm from EOS Canada, CTO over there. Uh, we've been doing a lot of deep technical work, and uh, maybe we're, the, we're best known for uh, writing EOS BIOS, which was, uh, you know, sort of a a way to bootstrap the mainnet, right? We worked a lot to figure out because when we came in, like three, four months before the launch, there was no way this network would launch. So we figured we're going to figure it out. We're going to write a software that everyone can run, and now it's still over there. It's still available. People can people can use EOS BIOS. We just released a new version, actually, to uh, launch something that looks like a mainnet locally or launch other networks. But all the logic, the difficult things of you know, and the, the the boot sequence is all in there. So we've been you know, known for that, and we sort of huddled a community around such a way to boot in a network. So I think we've been known since the launch for that, for helping launch the mainnet. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I mean, that's what that's where I knew you guys from. I remember there was a lot of actually, I mean, I shouldn't call it drama, but around the mainnet launch, I mean, that was a really intense project. And it wasn't just, uh, you know, there was a lot of ideas on how to launch it and a lot of talk about, you know, these attack vectors that people weren't taking yeah, into account. Yeah. And, haven't uh, seen much attack in the end, right? No, yeah, no, and then and then no it looked DDoS. like yeah, and then it looked like you guys, your team, EOS Canada, kind of came to the to save the day and 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 righted the ship. And you know, it was it was intense. They, they were launching the new new internet all at once. Right. <laughs> that was like kind of an amazing time. So I remember going to the hotel just near the office at three a.m. and then we would uh, rotate just to see what China would have like decided next day. It was a crazy time. Yeah, so it was fun to be there. Yeah, and to be like, part of it, right? And write pieces of software that people would use to actually understand. Because even though uh, like, people went through the code to understand how we booted, just not the, the one software we wrote. And then uh, anyway. Yeah. So yeah, Fantastic. out of that, we've continued writing tools. We wrote like EOSC, which is a CLIOS replacement that has a bunch of funky features. And, um, and that runs across platform. And then uh, we also shipped EOSQ.app, which is a full-blown block explorer. And uh, that I think today is the most precise that has support for deferred transaction, whereas no other block explorer has. So I'm pretty proud of that. What would, a support, for, what would support for deferred transactions look like? I'm not, I, I've well, used block explorers before, but not. Yeah, really. so you know, you have some operations that uh, defer transaction for later. It's actually a core feature of EOS, a great feature that you can have a, tr a contract emit a transaction to be executed later. So the refund, for example, when you undelegate some bandwidth, you'll have a refund three days after. That triggers you know, a deferred transaction that arrives three days later. But you don't see that anywhere. Whereas our, our, our Explorer, you can see that it created that deferred transaction. You click on that transaction, you can see it's been waiting or it's executed or it failed because it can fail. And uh, so it resurfaces all that information and that's not available anywhere. So. We've that's actually deep that's work a, for that. Yeah, that's actually a really cool tool. That makes sense because uh, I have staked and then unstaked tokens, and there's that in between period where you're kind of in the dark, hoping that exactly click the buttons correctly. It's in it, and you know when it's your when it's your EOS, you you know I sit there three days and wonder. You yeah, that little and without such a tool, there's actually no way for you to know if the transaction has failed or the reason for the failure mm -hmm. if you don't have such uh, a system like we have. 
you can't know why it failed. But now you can track it because we track the deferred and we link it back to the originating transaction. And, and then we also track when you cancel transaction, transaction that are deferred because you can do that. And that's another crazy feature, right? That's what I like from EOS. With all this permission system where you can have like two persons sign for a transfer, but you can have another one that was there just to watch and it would require, for example, a delay of, of two hours. He'd have the time to check and cancel the transaction mid-flight. That's with deferred transactions. But if you can't see them, uh, you're not really secured or protected, right? So you need to have a way to see those things. What would be yeah. like, that makes sense. It's almost like a, uh, an arbiter in the middle making sure that things are right. Is that what you're saying? And yeah, what, exactly. What it's, was like a real, tell like a story about how Yeah, that so look, you have a, an account that has a big stakes. So you set up the permission system so that you need to have a weight of three, okay? For example, a threshold of three. And each... Uh, weight is contributed by either a private key or a time delay or another account signing. So you could decide you have only two keys there and a time delay. The time delay can give plus one on the threshold and the key is plus one too. So if you need three, you can't just send a transaction with those two keys. You also are forced to add a time delay. So you set up your account this way because you want the guarantee that it's going to take minimum of X amount of time for the transaction to go through with your account. And if you're guaranteed that, then no one can, no hacker can try to exfiltrate funds from your account without setting that time delay. But if that time delay is there and you have the keys, you can, you know, you can invalidate that transaction. You can okay. cancel it in flight. So, so it's, it's not like going to ever apply. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So you can design and craft like an awesome system that I think no other blockchains do today if we can say YAS is a blockchain, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That's a that's a that's a really cool tool, and I'll start using that block explorer. Um, what was it called again? It's called the EOSQ, right? EOSQ.app. Yeah. EOSQ.app. And I'm sure people can find it um, on your website. Yeah, yeah. And we have also a version on Kylin, and we can roll that out on other chains. Some people are interested in having that roll it. And that's all right now, backed by where we're going now with EOS Canada. It's called Diffuse.io, and uh, that's a data access layer in an API that's more sophisticated than what we get with normal nodes, instrumented in more, yeah, more, with more guarantees. We can talk about that later. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that later. Let's get. Let's talk about the um, what you think generally the most exciting thing that's going on in EOS right now is, as far as just big picture. What, what's getting you most excited about the blockchain? Um, if you can call it that. <laughs> I think we can. I think we've got got some discussions with those folks and. Uh, I'm pretty confident we can tell. Um, exciting things. Uh, I'm excited to see the new apps coming out. So, of course, our focus right now is in having a streaming API with Diffuse, right? Streaming APIs that make user experiences great. What I'm excited to see is that people with... <laughs> I'm excited to see Block One's wallet come out also. And also the EOS Links wallet. Because all these things together, we have an app on your phone that manages your keys. And that is just sort of a generic window on the web. And then web apps can, you know, ask you to sign transactions and you have those keys secured, right? It's like having a browser with those EOS keys in there, just like scatter a little bit. Uh, well, and with sort of an API with Diffuse, we can see incredibly reactive and powerful apps where the user experience is great, is on par with what you'd expect to go on the web, right? We're close to that. That, that place where people will not distinguish they're using a blockchain. They'll see a thing that they need to sign a transaction, put their finger. They might feel secure about that, right? Because they're going to put a finger before doing some actions. And then uh, for the phones that have like a finger touch ID thing. Yep. 
So I'm excited to see those apps come out. And we're seeing more and more. Like I've tried the EOS Links wallet that, yeah. that have integrated that and you have like some apps. You go there, it's very fluid. You go there, it detects your account, poof. You're sort of logged into that web platform automatically just by saying, like you can share my account name there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you don't need to log in. You can sign transactions that are authoritative. So yeah, I find that very exciting. The user experience and because it underpins the go-to-market solution, right? It's a solution for EOS to become more broadly used because we're going to blur the lines. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, the, that's huge right now. That's, there, to me, there's kind of these two missing factors. There's the, uh, the UX and like you were saying, if we make it so we can't, we don't notice the blockchain. People aren't going to use this technology because they won't use this technology because um, they love the tech. They're going to use it. It's got to be easier or as right. easy as what's out there now. And yeah. Incentives. Um, With 0.5 yeah, second blocks and yeah. fast propagation like we have and streaming APIs, which wasn't very useful before if we didn't have like fast blocks, people would just pull. But now you can have very efficient apps. Yeah. It's crazy. It's undistinguishable almost. Yeah. And that, that EOS Links wallet is a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it starts to show you what's possible once this starts to, to flow nicely. I mean, if they had some sort of fiat on-ramp, that, that would be a game changer. So that's you know, the that's next kind of, thing, right? Yeah. What excites me, it excites a lot of people, but it's the stablecoin thing. Since, you know, I've been in the Bitcoin space for a few years. I started a Bitcoin business in 2013, ran a thing called BitCredits. It was, you know, to give each website its own credit, but it was all off-chain. And then we have all the fiat on-ramp and I became a payment processor, literally, but at that time, there was no market for that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but uh, why was I saying that? Uh, we we're talking about how the fiat on-ramp into the EOS links. Right. So the problem I was facing everywhere there is that people would say, this is too volatile. We can't build anything like that. Mm-hmm. Like my father-in-law, he's in finance. He says, never, ever is it going to work if the thing is so volatile. People won't put their, you know, their savings in there because it's too risky. Yeah, that's totally true, right? People don't do that. But if we do have, I imagine like on a wallet where you have a little switch, duk, duk, and you have EOS, and then you can just you know, freeze it. And then it's exchanged in the USDT, USDE, USDC, name it, right? Whatever stable coin or pools of stable coin you could, you could do it in a wallet. Then it becomes very easy to freeze your thing and be shielded from volatility. volatility. And then if you want to go to a certain, I don't know, app that uses that or that coin, just a flip of a switch in a wallet, the user experience is going to be great. I don't think we need to have humongous fees. We could just transfer like a few bucks. And then you can start using that other thing without much volatility risks. That's going to be huge. And we're going to see new apps and people who, you know, they understand USD. It's going to be fine, right? They understand some other currencies. So they won't fear that as much. Yeah, that, I take that, me too. Yeah, taking that, that fear out of it and giving some people like a, a little bridge of something they're familiar with, and, and that's a perfect exactly. Example. Yeah, you just flick it over and see it in USD, and all of a sudden you feel you know confident. Okay, that, that feels good. And then when you want to get risky again, you know, press the button and flick it back into. And you know what? That's going to mimic more what happens in the real world because people have, for example, like ten dollar bill, USD money, right? Mm-hmm. And that's one representation of USD. But you also have USD you're holding in a bank. And that is not exactly, not in technical terms, the same USD because it's bound to different risks, right? And it's worth, okay, they're promising to give it back. But, you know, depending on where you store that USD, it's not exactly the same. In you banks, at like least. the long tail risk of having it in a bank? Well, I've seen some, I remember reading the Ian Griggs um, superb writings i admire the guy at the angry he was uh doing a block one uh, um, 
things about uh, governance, cryptography, and the Ricardian contract. He invented the Ricardian contract, right? And he was talking about smart contracts, or, or no, not smart contracts, contracts where you need to specify which type of USD you're talking about because they're not equal, right? If you're either in a trust here or they're in the bank there, they, they, they sort of bring a different risk to, to the contract you're signing. So that exists already. So if we have USDC, USDT, USDEG, USD, whatever they are, they're also just another representation of USD and people are accustomed to that. That's what I'm trying to say, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, and I'm, and is there, just to be clear, the risks of the different risks that, that people don't look at is actually holding money in the bank and the possibility of, for some reason, not being able to get it out or the time risk if there was a delay yeah. getting it out or those types of... Yes, a bunch of these things, which make it not the same ease of access, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, with yeah. the stable coins, the risk is obviously the third party they're holding and the different dynamics for you to get your coins back at the times. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, well, how do you see it playing out that... Uh, because I've thought about this as well with stable coins, but it seems like they share this, this long tail risk also of, of the stability of the U S dollar. Like, yeah, it should be there. But what if the U S dollar were to uh, drastically lose value? Then what happens to stable coin? How's that affected? It's going to be stable downwards, right? Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, nothing we're just seeing when we study those things that nothing is sure in life, right? Everything's free floating somehow and it's pegged to something and it's all in people's minds, right? It's a, it's a social construct. It's what people think. It, it can't be otherwise, right? There's nothing absolute about money. It's about human relationships. It's about exchange, which is a fundamental thing. That's why I'm so excited by blockchain because it's, it's touching such a fundamental aspect of human life. It's a sharing, exchange, right? Of things, of, of a value. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's why that's actually why I'm so interested in EOS as a social experiment and, and the tech that's behind it is amazing. But um, just like the, the bigger picture argument of people saying that, uh, you know, you need to be code as law. And I'm always talking about there's this middle point, whereas humans, we're not completely garbage at governing ourselves. We know how we've been doing it forever. There's just some kind of inherent flaws that maybe we right. haven't incentivized right. And EOS is tacking these different uh, incentives on to what yeah. we're already good at. It's, you know, it's interesting. Exactly. I'm always, always puzzled when people try to, to fork out the human out of the blockchain, <laughs> right? Uh, it's because like it, we're, we're, some people see humans as so perverse that we need blockchain to save them. That's in my opinion, like very wrong in the sense that in any case, it's humans that are going to, you know, do those things. So we can't just fork the human out and the blockchain is not going to make the human better right mm -hmm. humans are going to use the blockchain to become better and to do better things more easily it's always about us it's always about you know we're the end and the purpose of these things yeah that's a i mean that's a great concept it's kind of cool to think about the human as the you know as the base layer and then we're adding layers on top of it we're not trying to add a means, new base layer you know means yeah. but the the person is the end mm -hmm. always in everything we do it's just implicit as as how human act right so mm -hmm. blockchain is also a mean means to an end. Yeah, well, the, the, in such, such exciting times we're living in with these, with all the changes, I mean, and, and there's teams like EOS Canada are out there building all these little tweaks and tools that maybe, I mean, that's part of the reason I do the podcast. There's so much going on and there's so many teams building stuff and uh, every little tool you build like that block explorer that seems small, but it makes the ecosystem more livable so that we, we can enjoy it and it can grow, you know? Yeah, so, so, so the Block Explorer story is not an end of itself. It, 
the goal there is to provide what underpins the explorer. The explorer is just a view of the blockchain, but mm -hmm. what's underpinning is diffuse, it's the API. And that API, we want it to be available to all DAP developers so that their application could be extremely reliable. They can select some guarantee level they want to, you know, accept. And, uh, and uh, you know, we provide that information, which doesn't exist right now. Yeah. And for people listening who may not know what an API is, it's basically a plugin, like a developer tool. Can you give an example of maybe what one would be and how it would make a developer's life easier, a user's life easier? Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's right now two, three functions that are core to the Diffuse API. The API is a way for people that are developing dApps to access the blockchain data, right? That's what we're offering. And one of them is, for example, get to transaction lifecycle. So the story goes like that. You have a guy who sends a transaction to a front node and then it, it, it wants to get into a block, right? So that it's committed to the blockchain and there forever and apply its modification of balance, right? Affecting a transfer from one person to the other. So they're sending the transaction through and that's the nature of a blockchain. They don't know if it's going to get into a block, right? They don't really know. It, it might, so it might be refused from the get-go, then they know it's been refused. But if it's been accepted, it doesn't really mean that it's going to be inside a block. Could depend on network latency, could depend on the second node behind refusing it, but they don't see it. So it's very important to track the life cycle of a transaction. Now what people do is they send a transaction and then they query the chain from time to time, come and see back and say, uh, is, is it in? And then is it, uh, you know, is it valid? Is it in a block? And then they only need to poke later on, okay, has it passed a certain threshold of certainty? It's going to stick there forever or it's going to be forked off because that's a risk, right? You can have a transaction on the blockchain if you have block reorgs in any blockchain and uh, before it reaches finality and on EOS, that's irreversibility. You know, this one is trailing from approximately 320 blocks in, in a normal uh, network condition. So that's quite long. That's like 150 seconds. That's you know, quite a hefty time. So, but in that meantime, you want to take some decisions, right? Where is that transaction at? Has it been made into a block or not? So by using the, you know, the get transaction lifecycle, you can be informed. Push. We're going to send you a message when the transaction gets inserted into a block. If it's forked out, like it's not into the longest chain anymore. So you want to know that because maybe you want to update your UI and say, well, I told you you have five EOS, but no, no, you have only three. Mm -hmm. That's the new reality until it confirms into irreversibility. So, you know, dApps, depending on their nature, they will want to know that. Some, some people will don't, not care because the moment the transaction is in a block, it's a sufficient channel for them because they're sending messages, right? Or an email. And in that case, for them, it's okay because the moment it's in the block, the other person can get it and have the, you know, the certainty is, is legit. So they don't need that. But for a trader, you know, he wants to know if the transaction is in to take the next trading decision. So it's very important. So that's one example of the things we're doing. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good example. I mean, anytime that you're building a base layer tool that other developers can use, I mean, it's, it's a second layer of tools. You know, like, yeah. that's great. Um, is the EOSIO forum, is that something, is that kind of a side project or is that one of your main projects? Does that sound, well, that sound interesting? Right, right. That's very interesting. So we've been, you know, since the launch, the, the question of referendum and, and changing the constitution and, and the core changes like the recs and things like that, uh, it's been largely recognized that we would want to pull the token holders for that, right? Do a referendum. We needed a solution, a technical solution. And uh, so EOS Canada, a few, other, a few other block producers also, and a few other volunteers joined in an effort to create such a thing. So the challenge is having something that is on-chain, so that it goes through the authorization of signatures of transactions. 
in that it would be you know reflecting the stake that people have because it's stake weighted voting, and uh, and then for a way to you know compute the results and then take action on the results, right? It seems simple. So we wrote the smart contract. We wrote some of the backend tools to do the computation on the, you know, the tally, what we call the tally, to allow anyone really to create referendums or voting system. It could be as simple as, you know, where do we go for lunch? And you have your teammates vote. And then you, you, don't, you disregard, you know, the, the amount of staked weighted. You can do that. Or in the case of a global EOS referendum, we want to, you know, handle all the proxy voting, handle the weighting, and do some snapshot from time to time to make sure that the vote is consistent because people can unvote using that contract. So if they vote and it's consistently over 10%, you know, 10% yes over no, then after a certain number of days, we will consider that as a yes. And then, so the block producers will, will take effect, right? We'll apply the thing that is said in the, in the referendum. Now, a big challenge is how do you word those things, right? There's teams right now that are, how do you word it so that it's not confusing, so that token holders understand and, you know, they're not, they're, there's no two competing uh, propositions. Like, we want to raise BP pay at 15% and we want to shut it down at 0 0.001. Uh, you know, you can't put that up, like, and not have people very confused. So the writing of the ballot, I think it's called, you know, that's ongoing right now. And the referendum contract and the systems to do the tally are in beta. So it's been rolling out, it's been tested. There's a few UIs, including EOSC, which is a command line tool there, allows you to vote, check the tallies and all that. So yeah, it's an exciting time. We're going to see the first time, I guess, a huge referendum like that worldwide. And yeah, that referendum is going to be really cool to see it come out. Is it, so is, it, um, are, is there a group of block producers working on one referendum, or is there more than one referendum uh, tool that's being built? No, it's... Uh, I haven't heard since a few months back uh, okay. any other referendum being worked on. It's the one. It's, uh, mm -hmm. You can find the code at EOS and GitHub, eoscanada.eosio.forum. And you have the source code there. It's released on the mainnet in the EOS forum RCPP account. It was right. a release candidate, but it's being used for the beta. We'll see if we rename it or not, or if it sticks or whatever. What's that starting to look like with, you mentioned how it's worded is important and um, you know, what the question is is important. Yeah, What's it starting to look like how you're solving that problem as to how that's picked? Uh, that's a good question. I would say it's more a question of governance, which is not as much my, you know, my, my affair. We, we, uh, we made the system so that it's reliable and uh, you know, the smart contract on chain allows for different semantics for people to view votes, view proposition. <clears throat> now, the work of you know, wording the ballot is in some other people's hands. There's a working group for that. I don't have all the details. I hope I don't need to have all the, de the details. No, you don't. But, it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, I, well, I, you know, I was asking because I was talking to someone about it who kind of had an interesting explanation for me, which I thought, which finally, because I've been asking this question for a long time and haven't got an answer that was like, oh, that makes sense. Um, it sounds like, so if you guys were to build the base layer for the referendum contract and then say there's, there would be multiple UX interfaces over top yeah. of it. So, uh, depending on which UX interface you use, it's going to possibly, you know, they're going to be in charge of how to present that information. So right. If you were using, so it's up to us as community members to true to choose a platform that we're really interested in or that we trust. So if we trust, right. If EOS Canada makes a uh, a voting portal and you guys are and your team is wording the questions, well, I trust EOS Canada and I, you know, agree okay, kind of with their philosophy. All right, two things. So let me explain just quickly the sort of data model, maybe a little bit deep, but you know, it's a very simple data model when we submit a proposal. It's a blob of text in markdown format. Mm -hmm. It's going to accept a yes and no answer. 
So that's the current proposal. We wanted to keep it very simple so that we could have yes, no questions. Mm. And the content of the markdown is just what you see on, on GitHub in you know, the readme files, right? UIs can just pass that into a markdown renderer. That's what most of them will do. And there's no other fiddling with it. So most UIs will just display those proposals. There's a title, there's content, and there's a yes, no button. Okay. So that's the type be, of proposal. So the, so the question will be uh, actually kind of uh, created at that, that lower level UI won't have control over the question. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And the other thing is that the question, so UIs will allow you to filter by proposer. Okay. Right? Mm -hmm. So the example, I had a video on that on our YouTube channel explaining the, uh, the, the, the fact that the, this system does not, is not relying on spam, it's not risky for spam, is that we most probably will see black producers put up proposals okay. that they know they can enact, right? Because they have the authority, they're, they're able to you know, take the result and do something about it. Now, we might also see some other people that are influent put up proposal under their name and then start gathering steam around them, right? People will vote. But most UIs, I would assume, will start by filtering on EOSIO just so that it's not, you're not going through a big load of, you know, of propositions by people who are doing tests or, or, or you know, voting for their lunch, you know, where, where they go for lunch because they can use it for that. So, you know, there's sort of a vertical aspect. I was also giving the examples that, Let's say you're Everypedia and you want to do a, you know, um, a referendum for your community. They can do the tally how they want, but they'll probably put their proposals under their name so that people can filter Everypedia proposals. You're going to see, and Everypedia puts their reputation on the line where they put up proposals and have users direct their attention to it, right? It's scarce resource attention there. So I think uh, the brow producers will be very uh, cautious at not putting out garbage proposals under their account doesn't may mean that people cannot filter other proposals. And if other community members gather steam around their proposal, it could put pressure on the block producers to put out either the same proposal or simply honor it altogether. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But there's a marketing effort, it's a global marketing effort to bring eyeballs to referendum. So there's a social challenge there that I think we need to focus, you know, to send the smallest question, more clear question and start by one, right? It's gonna be easy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, that does start to make sense. I mean that people, it's almost like a proxy. I mean, not a proxy, but there's this, people are going to have to build reputations for their, for, for others to want to look at their proposals or take right. them seriously. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that, that, that sounds like a pretty resilient way to do it. I mean, so um, yeah, I'm starting to get a clear picture on it. I like that. I like that. I can't wait. So it's in beta right now. When, when do you think the first referendum vote will actually go through or have a good question right now? The code is ready, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's not a very complex contract, although we've fine tuned a lot of the small details for being able to search and filter, but uh, the votes are stored on chain and people cannot, you know, vote twice on the same proposal. Uh, you can't just take out the proposal and put back another one. It's pretty safe in that sense. And, and then we're waiting for the ballot uh, question to come out, right? So the other teams, that's, that's, that might take more time than the technical things, right? Technicals, you can just run unit tests and you're, you're done. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, discussions, that can take longer. So I have no clue about uh, when that, that's going to come out. Hopefully soon, before the end of the year. Hopefully before the end of the year, right? Yeah. Well, if the, I mean, if it's, if it's that close, then it's, uh, you know, the teams team, uh, tend to move pretty quickly in, in e, on the EOS IO blockchain. So that's a, nice, that's a nice thing about what we're doing is we don't have to wait six months usually for something right. cool to happen. You know, so um, you were talked about uh, micro forks and hard forks on your YouTube channel as well. Can you tell people right. what the difference between those are and, you know, what a micro fork is? 
So yeah, um, uh, if you haven't seen the video, the micro forks we're seeing, we're seeing some small forks. Okay, let me talk about the recent, we're talking about like recent BP stuff here. Okay. So there's been a recent update to the target CPU time for a block. Okay, it's a value on the blockchain that we change. So that, let's say you have this amount of time for a block, right? It's 500 milliseconds. So I, I'm showing my hand here, like 100%. <laughs> He's showing about three inches on his hand. <laughs> right, exactly. And then you have like a half of an inch, which is reserved for you know, the time you're going to fill up, you're, you're going to consume transactions. So you're going to execute transactions until that target is reached. Let's say 20%. That was, that's what it was before. 20%. And after that, you need to do all sorts of uh, wrapping. You need to sign the block and propagate it to the network, right? Under 0.5 milliseconds. So all these milliseconds are very important. And... You know, it also means a certain number of transactions get, can get inside that time frame. If so if we raise that number, we can fit in more transactions inside that, you know, let's say we have a 30% target, okay, of, of 0.5 milliseconds. Maybe we can fit more transactions. But also, it means that there's less time for block propagation. So we have been seeing, so we put it up to 30% because people wanted more CPU. It affects also the pricing of CPU. The price, the CPU goes, price of CPU goes down when we do that, but it affects the network stability a little bit, right? So we want to have those blocks propagate from block producer to one another, but everyone has more transactions to process before they can produce a block on top, and it puts a little bit more strain on the network. So it's been tried at 30%, and we've been seeing a little bit more micro forks. That means some blocks have not arrived to the next producer in time. They haven't seen it. So they started producing on the previous block. So it means there's a one block here that was left dangling. It's just a stale block. And it, it can confuse people who are not tracking the transaction lifecycle properly, right? Who are just saying, okay, I've seen the transaction. It's in a block. The transaction is in a block. But it might be forked out. Mm -hmm. So these things put a little bit more, you know, less reliability on the network. And uh, so we don't want to see those microforks happening. And uh, they're immediately resolved by the longest chain. The moment a producer just produces one block more than the, the previous fork block, uh, the, the chain resolves, right? And most of the time, a transaction that was forked out is also going to be included in the longest <coughs> chain. So for the most part, it's okay. But I've seen some transactions that expire before the longest chain comes and puts them in. So literally, the transaction was forked out. That's okay. what happens. And then so that's the, micro forks. Yeah, okay. it's, it, it's about, uh, sorry, it's about um, reliability of the network. It's not it's non-threatening, except for you know, consistency matters. So, is there any factor with uh, block producers having good enough infrastructure to to speed up the milliseconds, or is it is it more a, a question network of network topology versus cost? Yeah, it's it's a question of network topology, right? We need to. We have decentralized entities. Blocks need to relay from one another. There's a lot of work being done right now to optimize those handoffs because it's a very fast blockchain. This thing needs to be super efficient. There's a few solutions in the work. Optimization of Nodios so that block propagation does it with less checks. Some other third-party relays that could cir you know, circulate blocks faster or um, uh, there's a few other options there. Like uh, having the block producers be sorted in an order that makes them closer geographically, right? Oh, That's yeah. another option people have been working on. We should see, hopefully, I'd like to see that uh, arrive soon. So that means like less handoffs. You don't need to go from Montreal to Beijing, right? Uh, and expect to come back at 0.5 milliseconds all the time. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, well, it sounds, I mean, those things on the user end, people feel like the, uh, you know, the blockchain is, is really reliable already. So as those things clean up and it gets, right. it's faster and cheaper and CPU is, uh, less expensive. I mean, those are those little, those little tools all help, you know, it's, it's right. That could bring us to, to side chains. I know you like to talk about sister chains <laughs> yeah. and side chains, right? How do you distinguish that? Cause that's another opportunity for scaling CPU and RAM and all these things, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what's your take on that? Well, you know, the, the sister chains at first I looked at it, at it like some sort of, uh, some sort of fork or some sort of competition from, uh, for EOS in the, in the beginning, I didn't have a, a clear understanding. Um, and now I look at it as a kind of a, a resilient, like, actual sibling to the the chain that's like this big family of chains because once we have inner blockchain communication it gives us this opportunity for something like warbly to try out some fintech or something like talos to try out um different models that maybe even someday we could use on um on eos so i see like the sister chains as as, as how they sound as as part of the family that are you know kind of working towards the same goals but are going to live different lives <laughs> and, and what about, how do you define side chain and i'm trying to figure out the distinction there you know i don't have a i don't have a, a i use them almost interchangeably okay honestly. okay so yeah. what i can see there's a difference is that is it reusing the main net token right is it okay. not, or is it? Does it have its own token? Is it totally separate, but just reusing the same base technology? Yes, I/O software. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, you know when we're talking about scaling EOS uh, and the mainnet, uh, I think where we're going with that is that we'll see some chains that are probably launched by the same block producers from mainnet, and they're going to be, uh, you know, constructed in such ways that the flow from of EOS from mainnet to those side chains, I would call them, maybe, I'm not, not sure about the distinction there, but you know, to those chains that are run by the same block producers, they will, that will scale for every token holders in mainnet, right? It's going to really give a big boost of CPU availability, RAM availability, because it's just another process with its own memory that can run and, and scale up. Um, all these things are not without challenge right now, although, right, because having cross-chain communication, I think is going to be the next level of, of complexity, right? I think EOS solves a lot of issues with scalability for real-world dApps. Real-world dApps right now can run on EOS. Some of them, I've talked to a bunch of them, are really thinking, okay, if I really want to scale up, I'll probably need my own chain for all my users. They're seeing far in the future. But for that to really be useful, you need to have a peg between the mainnet and the other chain because you want to have people go to that other chain, perhaps create an account, or will those accounts be synced with mainnet, right? Because there's, if there's a different chain, there's a different account, we need mappings between this and that. That can be a little bit cumbersome. And I'm thinking also of wallets, right? I'm imagining a wallet that lists your EOS token. And the same way we were saying it just earlier about the USD, which is not the same USD, Right? When you have a USDT or a, a $20 bill or you know, some USD in your bank account, it's not the same representation. It has different you know, uh, semantics somehow. Well, we'll see the same thing with EOS. If we have ma a main chain plus many other side chains, and then you have coins on all these things, they're not really the same, right? Because mm -hmm. one is sort of locked in a chain. It might, it might have some constraints on how well or easily or fast you can bring them back to mainnet to interact with another contract that lives on mainnet. So are we going to see like a wallet that sort of accumulates all the EOS on the different chains and then you sort of going to click and, and it's going to expand all the sub 
balances you have on the nets and accumulate them. And then you could, from a, a wick of a finger here, like transfer them from one chain to the other. It's going to be a challenge to have many networks. Yeah, that seems like a huge challenge. Um, and, and, and people talk about it a lot, and I even do. But, uh, but I mean, I, what kind of timeline do you think is on something like that? That seems like it's something that could take a, a year or even more. Well, two. I, I think we can put out some prototypes that, you know, because EOSIO was designed with all the data structures to be able to put out proofs to, um, to you know, sister chains or side chains that are going to tell the sister chain that this happened on the other chain, right? A lot of the Merkle roots are there. We can port uh, with Dan's, uh, Dan's tree there. He has a special structure so we can just pass one side of the, the tree and do some validation. So, um, but that's not without risk itself, right? We can put out some protocol, but if you have, as you under, might understand, or for the, for, the, for the listeners here, when we have two chains communicating with one another, they both have a pair of smart contracts that allow them to recognize what happens on the other chain. It's two smart contracts working together to bridge one chain to the other. So you can imagine this is a smart contract. It can eventually contain bugs, right? And it's representing the whole other chain, right? It's recognizing or honoring everything that's happening on the other chain. All the tokens, maybe millions of tokens that are waiting on the other chain to, to get approved from, I don't know, the sister chain to you know, withdraw or, or release funds back on the mainnet. So you don't want that to ever go off of sync. Mm. So the protocols need to be very solid. The, you know, the, the, the code needs to be very well tested. Even though we could ship a prototype, uh, we'll need a little bit of time to sort any issues out because it puts a whole network at risk, right? All yeah, the users like, on the network can be put at risk. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it, it adds a ton of attack vectors. I mean, if you want to add an entire chain. So would it be, would it be uh, one protocol that's kind of interchangeable for, for every every new sister or side chain or, or would it be or would there need to be a specific protocol for every different chain that comes up i think we're going to see do you hear me well there yeah i think we're going to see many protocols um so there's an obvious protocol that's going to be native to eos that mm -hmm. brings these those data structures that were designed from the ground up for ibc so it's going to be easy right because we're going to have like a very thin layer we can reuse the c plus plus code even from node eos to do to port some of these you know features if we need to implement blockchain logic on the other on the two sides so Probably native EOS to EOS is going to be easy, but I'm we're, like we're seeing, you've seen a Bancor X, they're porting things from one chain to the other. We're going to see some Oracle, some other protocols, Cosmos, and other Polkadot things that are going to eventually bridge multiple chains. We're using some mechanisms. So yeah. it's not going to be only one mechanism. So each of those mechanisms can put things a little bit at risk, according to the. That's why if we could eventually have EOS back on Ethereum. Because there's a bridge somewhere, sort of a wormhole. Like someone said that mm -hmm. the guy from Rio. Hmm. And, 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 but that wormhole is not you know, created equal for all the bridges. So that's going to be... And, and understanding all these bridges and having the UIs understand all these things could be really tricky. That's why I think the Diffuse API we're building is going to help alleviate that. We're going to bring you a data layer that you know, abstracts you those things so we can query multiple chains perhaps in, in a single command and, and get a a developer-friendly view of what's going on underneath all that, you know, in the end, quite a complex system. It's yeah. quite complex. <laughs> so we want to shield developers from having to understand those things and they can select guarantee levels and we're going to inform them that these are the risks if they're not using such an API. And <laughs> that's fun. Yeah, I mean that's 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 an amazing project. That's one of those that's one of those big picture EOS projects that just seems like 
I mean, it's so big. It, it, it seems daunting to me. I'm not, because right. I'm not a tech guy. I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's just, yeah. uh, yeah, that sounds amazing. Um, so keep working hard. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, what other, what other projects are you guys up to at EOS Canada? It sounds like you, you've got a lot on your plate. Is there anything Yeah, else? no, we're having a lot of fun. We have a, g- a great team. We've hired a few folks that are amazing they do amazing work they're sort of the top of the line devs i i'm really proud to have them on the team and um and oh we've wrote okay you know what one problem we're seeing uh, on the blockchain is that some people want to query the state in a stable way Mm -hmm. you know a problem we have with a fast blockchain is that if you have a transaction that transfers five dollars right you want you might want to know your balance after five after the transfer right Mm -hmm. how much do i have left but maybe there's another transfer that changes that balance $5 and again less, right? So to have a clear view of how much I had when and where, it's not very easy in a fast-moving blockchain like that. It's also a risk on other blockchains, but you know the window you have to query the blockchain is different, right? Now if you want to query like a, a, a thousand rows in a table on the blockchain, well, you'll query chunk by chunk and you risk going on the boundary of another block and then you're not sure of a consistent view. So we figured that out and we also said to ourselves, like people are going to want to query the blockchain state at any block. They want to know what was that, my balance at block seven and, and, and seven million. So we created a database that does just that, processes the data from the chain and gives you an endpoint to query the full blockchain state of all the contracts table at any block. So that's part also of the Diffuse API. I'm really proud of that. And uh, it's a, I think it's a solid engineering feat that we, we pulled out there. And uh, so you can access, uh, you can, have a, can get an API kit to get the, that information today. Cool. Well, if you are listening to this and you want an API kit, I'll put uh, that in the show notes. So there'll be a link right. to that for people to find for you. D-F-U-S-E.io, Diffuse.io. D-F-U-S-E.io. Um, you know, it's something, something interesting we came across, or I mean, the hackathon was, was epic. Right. And, uh, and it was just, what a blast. But um, the uh, DAP that won was actually one of, our, one of our friends from Starfish in San Francisco. Congratulations right. to their team. Um, and Starfish Mission, shout out to Starfish Mission, which is, um, we've got this killer workspace in San Francisco that um, they put together that's all crypto teams. It's all blockchain teams. So Lumios.io, um, with Ali and a bunch of other blockchain groups are in there and they do. Um, but anyway, that's, that's kind of where that, that hack team came from. Uh, right. But they did uh, Nougat and Nougat is a decentralized GitHub, which on the surface kind of sounds like uh, something that's needed with the drama around GitHub being bought by Microsoft, I guess. Uh, <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Like how, how feasible is that? Where are we at in actually developing something like a de- decentralized GitHub? Yeah, that's cool. So you were in a San Francisco hackathon, right? The San Francisco hackathon, right, right. yeah, just ended, and it was like one of the longest in my recent history. That's why you can hear in my voice for people who listen to this often that uh, you know I've got more of a uh, blues singer's voice today than I generally do. Um, I was had, yeah. had a lot of fun this weekend. I was at the uh, London hackathon. It was a, a great fun, also. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Block One has been putting uh, massive amounts there to you know create something crazy. The the, the, the swag was like. That. It was stunning the amount of attention to detail and the amount right. of just the production value of one of these hackathons is like nothing you've ever seen in the, you know, I mean, I guess you, if you go to like CES or something, I mean, you're going right, to see right. tech giants spending money, but, um, but it's like a concert or something or, you know, it's just, there was down to details. Like when you'd go up the stairs 
on the bottom rocker under like this, the steps, there was like logos, like, so it was all EOS and, you know, and all matching and it was, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was so fun. Yeah. So, so the, the winner was Nougat, right? So they want, they want to do decentralized. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, there's a lot of projects and at, at those hackathons, what I've seen at least is that the pitch is more important than the, the tech because some of the techs, some of the tech that is touted in these hackathons is really, really challenging. Like you can win a pitch because it's interesting and you answer the question, uh, you know, like uh, easily, but there are some really tough challenges in there. And, but I'm really excited to see that some people are taking on those challenges. Uh, you know, I, I, I've worked with IPFS when we were doing uh, the mainnet launch and IPFS, a lot of people say, okay, it's a decentralized storage of, of the future and it's all good, but it's not yet a very reliable platform. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, yeah, I feel that some people think that because it's decentralized, it's necessarily better. But I'm always, you know, concerned that the users, the users, in the end, businesses will exist Things will exist if users can use stuff and they're satisfied. We can't be subpar. I'm not saying it's not a good model there to, to have Git on, on IPFS. Although I might say it a little bit. You know, maybe we need something more reliable for, for the experience for the user. Because if you have a developer that's trying to push and he's waiting for an IPNS update, he's not going to be happy. Like he's going to be waiting and he's going to say, look, give me a Microsoft solution instead because it's going to work, right? Um, and uh, it's always tricky to put also incentivization models into things, especially like a commit, because what's the value of a commit, right? It's, it's subjective. People need to put you know, their head into that and, and um, uh, to judge and then to release some funds according to some, you know, humanly acceptable, uh, you know, uh, framework or, you know, agreement. And uh, you've seen that on, on Steam. The Steam blockchain has a thing called utopian.io. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. They've been using the, the Steam inflation to redistribute to people who are doing some PRs and doing some contributions, either in translations or you know, in, in design or code. And uh, they're using the Steam inflation for that, right? They're voting on those posts according to that community's uh, guidelines. If you respect the guidelines, the community is going to agree to release a, a bit of funds for you. I think that's a great model, can be replicated, and it didn't need to, um, you know, to be hooked in at the Git level, mm -hmm. right? At the lower technical level of a Git commit and have the distributed storage. It's just relying on things on GitHub, but it's still rewarding people for, for, for contributing to open source software. So I think we're going to see some sort of middle grounds, right? Well, people will realize that decentralization has costs, mm -hmm. and we need to make sure users buy into that. There's a big challenge. There's sometimes a gap. And I'm sure we're going to figure out nice ways to, you know, to attain decentralized, a better decentralization, but through, through a, a meaningful means and, and more, uh, I don't know, respectable of, uh, not respectable, but uh, more in line with what people expect, right? Yeah, yeah. So that user growth can come. Well, I mean, and you have a really valid base point there is that people aren't going to use things just because they're decentralized. Even me, who right. is like a, a big proponent of the blockchain, 
movement basically um, I still use Google for you know Google Chrome and Google and Gmail and and photos and like I let it all tie together because it's so easy and like I don't like it but it's it's easy you know and I'm not gonna use something that doesn't work that good like <laughs> so you know that's, and, that's how it and is. And decentralization has technical costs latency reliability costs that is not negligible so so when we want to do exchange of money that's fine for a simple layer but you know more complex apps doing a searching your email uh, you know, like like what Gmail does on a decentralized fashion. Well, man, start right now because it's going to be hard, right? Yeah. You want you'll need to have powerful mm -hmm. systems behind. It's not going to run on a smart contract, so you can have incentive models. So the layer there, we still need to figure out like where where does it start? Where does it cut? What can we provide value with, but still have? That's why we we believe that Diffuse, the thing we're building there, it's a data access API. Some people could say it's it's not decentralized. But, you know, all the data is cross-verifiable. But at the same time, people want that. They want the data. They can check it out after. They can check it out while. And we're, we certainly will have big incentives to make the data absolutely correct. But, you know, it will provide value because people will want that experience. And that's worthy of something. And, and on, the, on this thought, it, it's kind of a good example of baby steps are the biggest steps. What's good right. about the decentralization uh, that's trying to happen is that it's a one-way street. So as we decentralize these little tiny chunks along the yep. way, it's not necessarily, there's not a lot of reason for it to go back the other way. So it's good to just slow right. down and just check a chunk, you know, chunk away at it over years. And then, you well, know. I think these baby steps are going to build up into something incredible that we can't even think today. Right. Mm -hmm. But there are small steps like just the way that Bitcoin introduced cryptocurrency and then Ethereum introduced the smart contract, but really the crowdsourcing of, you know, fundraising, right? The core value prop of Ethereum is, I mean, not the core value prop, but the main use today is to issue a token and then raise capital around that, right? Mm -hmm. It's the biggest use. So Bitcoin and then Ethereum and then the dApps, the real use of dApps is another Step, right and it's going to be baby steps but on which we can build an incredible foundation for future economies what do you think like big picture do you, do you have any ideas of something unexpected that could come of blockchain that's like a bigger you know let's say 10 years down the road do you have any big idea thoughts and elon musk well, ideas of what could happen here yeah, yeah. <laughs> well you know i'm excited by i really love the the uber analogy right there's a company here in montreal called eva co-op and they're building something actually very important and inter interesting in the sense that it's Uber on the, on the blockchain. But I think the core value prop, from what I perceive, you know, from a, from a person, let's imagine I wasn't interested in the blockchain. I would touch, I'd be touched by that. The fact that, you know, a corporation like Uber is now taking profits from Montreal Island and sucking them up and bringing them to whatever Uber is located, right? But it'd be very nice that the people in Montreal, they can use their cab and the, the money is redistributed inside, right? Small co-ops. That's what they're building, <clears throat> co-ops, so that you have drivers that come together, set their own rules with smart contracts that it can either template or configure, right? The whole system is built because there's some properly distributed incentive model. Maybe they can pay for the developers to build a platform. They can pay for sustained services because they want you know, high search throughput and geolocation things that you won't get on the blockchain. But then when drivers use that co-ops, you know, pool of drivers, then the money goes to them and they can be rewarded a little bit, right? It's closer to the local economies. That's very interesting to me.
they could have built a central Uber-like thing, right? Where they would sell the token and then they would have the profit, a single entity. But no, they created a co-op style thing. And yeah. I think that in the future is what we're going to see, right? We're going to see that local economies can flourish with the power of large corporations, with the efficiency of what we're seeing on Uber today, but locally. That's fascinating. And you can have people locally do the marketing for a co-op, be paid by the co-op's you know, uh, incentive model there. And they don't need to, and they'll be part of the economy. They'll be stakeholders of that co-op and it's not going to be shipped out to a third-party corporation outside the world, outside the country, right? Yeah, that is such a fascinating concept because I always think back, I do these little mental exercises, you know, and, and think back about 10,000 years ago, how humans interacted, or, you know, even 20,000 years ago, how humans interacted and was this as far as governance and, and how we made things happen. But we come from a small groups and small bands of people. And that's like in our DNA is to that, right. that, that community level of interaction. We have a really good grasp on once we get past 30 or whatever the number is, um, it starts to, it starts to change a lot. And, uh, so that's, that's yeah. a great answer that. So the community yeah. centered close community center, but with the power of the giants, mm -hmm. that's what I found amazing. I find amazing. Yeah. Right. You cut out there a little bit for me with the power of the, what of the blockchain the giants, the power oh. of the giants, like yeah. Uber is a giant lift, whatever. Mm -hmm. But we can have that sort of, you know, huge machinery because, and, and still have the local community benefit from the economy. Mm -hmm. and, and the, the cool thing about that also is the anti-fragility of that or the resilience of that, let's say maybe right. robustness, because if there's all these little micro communities, parts of them can fail and things cannot work. Right. But uh, as those fail, it's not going to affect the whole. Whereas something like Uber, if something fails, like it fails across all, you know, everything. So I'm not scared about Uber failing, right? Someone's going to mm -hmm. take the place. That model will still exist. You know, I'm not scared that these companies, they have huge incentive, huge piles of money to, to do things. And they're going to be able to do it, right? I don't think that's an issue. The thing is that we'll want and we'll be happy to have a locally managed, a locally redistributed pool of money. It's going to be less fees and, and, and drivers are going to get more and they'll want to use that. I think it's going to touch you know, the human sensitivity more and we'll have still great experience, right? We need great experience. Yeah, correct. And I mean, and it doesn't matter if Uber fails, honestly, and they probably won't. But, uh, but yeah. if you extrapolate that out to apps where it does matter, I mean, let's say like the banking industry is a perfect example where you have a bunch of small micro economies all over the world that it's far more resilient. If one fails, it doesn't have to bring, a, you know, drag everything down with it. You know, that's where we start to, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be, that's a, that's a huge idea that you mentioned there for sure. I like it. Um, hmm. What did you Speaking of things like that, what what is the fear of GitHub being centralized? Is that why why from from a developer standpoint, is there some sort of fear with um, Microsoft purchasing GitHub, and what is that? So what's the well, what's the the risk, right? Mm -hmm. On a GitHub, there's a lot of open source stuff. So the stuff is open source. I mean, it's free. It's public. You can take it and go with it and Git assure you, assures you of cryptographic integrity of the content. So what's the risk? Is that Microsoft fiddles with files? Like they, they tweak files, they take, your, your private, uh, they take your private repositories and then they give them to someone else or they look into them you know, to extract your business IP. But they have contracts that binds them not to do so. And, you know, is that the risk we're seeing? That they're going to steal our intellectual property? And, and in any case, I think it's, um, not obvious 
to have a reliable decentralized system with privacy and built in. I mean, publishing and sharing information in a, an encrypted way that is secure, right? It's not an easy feat because blockchains are good at public stuff, but the moment you want to share things and ensure they're private, you need to have a lot of gatekeeping, a lot of encryption, and encryption eventually can be brute forces and, and failed. GitHub has huge, huge incentives not to be hacked. They have people monitoring that system. There's huge value in GitHub. The social aspect, the speed of it is crazy. The tooling they've built, it's an incredible feat, an incredible piece of software. I wouldn't try to decentralize GitHub per se with its UI. I, I can imagine GitHub plugging into some decentralized things or hooking in uh, uh, you know, incentive models when it makes sense. But to rebuild GitHub from scratch just because it's decentralized? I mean, it's going to be hard. It's going to be very hard. Yeah. Well, I've, I've been on GitHub and I've like pretended to click around on there and know what I'm doing, but like, I, I, I know very little about GitHub. Uh, all I know. So, so do you think that, um, it, do you think that it's just kind of a little bit of this over wanting to decentralize everything? Like, and, and there's not a lot of, is not, is it not that big a deal that GitHub was bought by Microsoft? Are people overreacting, you think? Uh, it was like philosophical. Personally, to, yeah, personally, uh, I don't really care. I don't really care that they've been bought by Microsoft. Actually, they've been putting out a bunch of new features just recently that are great. You know, searching through <laughs> issues. It's but getting better. Maybe, maybe it was. No, no, I don't think it's the, because Microsoft. Yeah, 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 these guys were working on these things probably for months, right? It's just been released and the, yeah. the acquisitions went in between. What's their strategy with that? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I know Microsoft has been changed. I've always been a Microsoft hater. I've been an open source proponent since like a Linux advocate. I've been Linux since, yeah. I, was, since I was 10, right? <clears throat> Uh, Microsoft has changed a lot. I don't want to bash yeah. on them in any way. Like, GitHub is great. They bought it. I don't know what's going to come out of it. Stay right off, now, I'm not, stay off the, I'm not concerned. Off they're not going to take out a repository. I'm pretty sure they don't have the time or the usefulness of going and peeking our repositories. And, you know, the guy going to gather some stats about you know, general purpose. I'm not scared. Okay, good. Well, that gives me some perspective. And I, you know, I think you, I trust your perspective. So I'll, 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 I'll not worry about GitHub. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, speaking of when you, you said when you were 10, uh, I think when you were like 12, you built your first botnet. What was that for? Like, what were you doing? Well, uh, when I was young, I had a, a small computer that was connected to the internet with a 12,000, no, a 1,200 uh, baud modem. Baud modem? Modem? Very slow. You could see the characters like scrolls. Da, da, da. Uh -huh. And... Uh, we were doing some stupid script kitties hacking sort of thing, and I, I, I wrote a, uh, a program that was compatible with the egg drop bots. And okay. the egg drop bots were the bot at that time. And uh, it would connect with those bots and communicate, and then we would, you know, sort of uh, had a bunch of friends that would run those bots. It was all written in MIRC. I was coding that in my math class, right, on some paper and then transcribing at home uh, at night. And they would connect, and then we could send a signal to the whole botnet connected together to, you know, disconnect someone else or to take over China. Stupid things the kids do, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, it was exciting because, you know, we'd have control. Someone would give a command, we UDP flood somewhere, someone, and then, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, kids, that's cool. But, yeah, uh, I like those old, uh, like, I like the, when the internet was new type of stories about people hacking or like, you know, making fun tools. Like, there's a lot, like, I've talked to some people who like as kids would, you know, they do something like hack into the local bank and like, you know, mess with their computers. And then 
the view on it at that point was like, oh, ha, ha that's so cute. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. broke into like the, the White House. How funny, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's come a long way. So um, it's fun to hear stories about people, you know, when it was more innocent, I think. So, oh, yeah, 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 exactly. More innocent. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's cool. Um, and you're also a, a classical pianist, I saw. Yeah, um, I studied classical play. piano. Okay. I never studied computer science. I think computer science moves so fast that if you don't learn by yourself, you're out of the game anyway. So I've been doing that since I was young, as I was interested. And, uh, you know, I just learned it and, and played with figure, uh, you know, fiddled with computers. So I learned it this way. Okay. Been. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of questions about like CS degrees, how valuable they are versus boot camps, and how valuable they are versus just learning online. My take on that, you know, from my perspective, I think if you're an avid learner, you're interested and you're passionate, well, I, I never had a CS degree. I, I never went through those things. I learned, you know, compiler things and, and then, and then um, you know, uh, the things people normally study. When I needed to do so with high interest because I had a problem I needed to do and, you know, some text parsing, which is very academic, you know, parsing, uh, 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 you know, lexers and things like that when you pro build your own programming language. I ended up studying those things later on because I needed it. So I was very passionate at that time. Maybe I would not have been very passionate at the time of a CS degree because I was been interested into I don't know learning Perl at that time. But mm -hmm. so and I've never been asked for a degree when I was doing an interview in my domain, right? So is it worth worth it? Not worth it? I don't know. What I know is that with enthusiasm and passion in this space, you can go very far. Yeah, and you need it anyway, right? You're in CS, you need that passion because it's going to change. It's going to change all the time. Yeah, it seems, I mean, it definitely has that feel of where just-in-time information is really good in, in, in programming, whereas just-in-case information could probably get kind of overwhelming because there's so much. Like, what are you just going to learn right. everything about right, computers, right. you know? So, um, well, that's good for anyone listening who's thinking about programming. And also another thing um, is that courses now, or the university itself, like, is going, is poised to change a lot, right? Um, because... It's not true that we'll have like hundreds of thousands of professors in all sorts of different cities that are just so, so professors. In an era where you can have the best professor, you know, teach a class to 100,000 students, this is going to change a lot, right? And you'll be able to learn in a very different way in the future, I think. Blockchain-based or not, uh, you know, some, some incentive models there, I don't know. But uh, yeah, education is going to change a lot. Yeah, from a, I mean, from a student standpoint, if you pick, you can drive, you know, half hour park, walk into a giant building, listen to possibly a, you know, just a par a professor, or you can sit at your house and listen to the best professor in the world. I mean, those decisions start to kind of, for time, build up. More people are going to be choosing right. the easier one, you know, so. And then you can have like properly adapted group time and individual time because it's been machine learning analyzed that that's the best way to keep you entertained and, and enthusiastic. And then you can hook, uh, you know, jump in your self-driving car that automatically pays <laughs> The next guy on front because it sends a Bitcoin or you know, an EOS transaction to say, I'm going to pass you by because you have programmable money. And then you can do that while you're driving. Yeah, future looks bright. It's going to be awesome. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It needs to be adapted to human though. It's serving, serving, serving the people and not the contrary. We're not getting rid of them because we're decentralizing the people, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone is centralized, right? Isn't that great? Are you centralized? You're so centralized. I, I, I feel like I've gotten, yeah, 
within this one spot. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, it is a good feeling. You, you actually, it's, it's, that's not a good sign if, you're, if your body's decentralized. Something's gone terribly wrong. But when someone says, oh, we should decentralize you, what does it mean, right? Uh, you want to clone me or just destroy me into pieces, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't like the idea of that. You know, I don't like where that conversation starts going. <laughs> um, well, as we, uh, you know, as we kind of wind down here in the last five or 10 minutes or so, what, uh, did you have anything big that we may have crossed, like kind of glossed over that's going on in the EOS community? Um, um, like good question. It was the, 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 the block size, the reason why we moved that. Oh yeah. Let's, let's talk about that. That's, 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 that's did, a, did that's we cover cool. that? We, we talked went about up to 30 um, and now we're reducing to 25 because it puts some strain on the networks. So we want to reduce micro forks. Yes. So that's one thing BPs have been working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We talked about that. Yeah, and that makes sense. Let me see if I have anything. So I'm going to throw a last thing. It's, it's a okay. feature that we have on Diffuse that I think has been instrumental in certain dApps, uh, you know, working well, is that we're the only API that provides changes to the tables. I know some people, I've been seeing some people inferring changes to the tables. And now I'm going to specify what it means by table. In the blockchain, you have tables with rows, and on those rows, you have your balance, your name and your balance for a certain amount, right? For a certain coin. And then when you do a transfer, you actually change two rows, your row and the other person's row, and you know, the balance changes a little bit here, removes the amount for you and adds it to the other person, right? So there's two rows involved. That's the state of the blockchain. Once the transaction has been applied, the transaction has succeeded. It has applied those modification. So you can read two things. You can read the transaction itself as a receipt and say, this transaction was validated. So I can be sure that the transfer amount and the quantity has been transferred from one another. But really, what is the defining factor that you did do a transfer? It's the state, right? Because the next time you send a transaction, it's going to read that row with your balance. And it's going to say, do you have enough to send it out? So it's very important to know the state and our API allows people to stream the state, changes to the state. So it's not just a transaction going through, but your balance going up and down according to those transactions. And we've seen some wonky contracts that even though you send a transfer, they don't change the balance accordingly, right? They don't respect the quantity field there. So there's some need to standardize a little bit, but some you know, diligent DAP developers will want to keep track of what are the actual changes to the state and maybe use that to reflect either their balance update. Maybe some apps will have your balance up there uh, in the corner so that you can, uh, you know, if you spend things or you're in exchange or a decentralized exchange, it'll change your balance back and forth. So you can stream that out. And that's a very unique feature you have there. Plus the snapshots of the state back in time. I mean, we're really proud of that. That's really cool. Yeah, that is cool. Actually, I was hearing someone uh, complain about something where it sounds like along those lines, but basically um, it, it reflects like until you push the next transaction, it doesn't reflect the, the state of the last transaction. So if you had three transactions, you had $10 and you spent a dollar, it's still going to show $10 until you spend a dollar again. And then it'll show $9, but then that next transaction is kind of, it's not reflecting the state. Is that is that what you're kind of... So I'm not exactly sure what this case would be, but... Uh, but when you have a series of transactions, yeah, you will, let's say you have three transactions inside one block and first one is applied and the next one is applied also, you'll have a state change in the first, so an update to the balance, a state change in the second one and in the third too. So if you look at the block level, the state will have changed in 
a way that is the sum of all the transactions. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you want to make sure this is authentic or legit, you need to really recompute, right, recompute the, the side effects of all these three transfers to make sure they line up, right? Mm-hmm. But really, recomputing the side effects of the transaction means to execute the contract. This is the code determines the side effects, right? Uh, so it's a little tricky, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure that case what was uh, the issue there. A difference we're seeing with Ethereum, that what I heard, because I'm not an Ethereum expert, I need to dig into that a little bit more, but Ethereum does not allow you to send a transaction before the previous one has passed, Okay. right? So you need you send a transaction, and until that one is inside a block, you cannot even send spend those coins before again. Whereas in EOS, you, you can just send ten thousand transactions if they fit into one block, and they're all applied in order, and you have enough money to spend all these. Mm-hmm. It'll just pass through. The end of the block will be the reflection of the last state. Right? So that's pretty cool. I've I've seen the Ethereum developers find a, that difference to be uh, interesting, along with all the the you know, resource uh, costs and all that. Are you seeing um, developers come over at all or is it still? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, We've been talking with a bunch of teams that are coming from Ethereum and uh, discovering uh, (laughs) mind blown by a bunch of EOS features and uh, the permissions, the costs, the storage layer, the storage uh, semantics and pricing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like the. I mean, it seems like the team. It, how big is the Ethereum developer community compared to like Ballpark compared? To I think it's larger. I don't have the numbers. Mm-hmm. Two hundred fifty thousand. I'm. I'm not sure, but uh, you know, I've seen. I've seen a lot of people who have been designing things and thinking in terms of smart contract, but they know that they can't ship on Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Now they're turning to EOS because they see that okay, now we have a platform that will be able to, you know, to scale up and our product we've been developing so diligently. Right, where are we going to ship it? And they're moving to EOS to to actually ship it. But it changes some semantics, right? It's not exactly the same. The pricing model is different. So some things that were not possible are now possible. You need to revisit the, the design sometimes from the ground up. So, uh, but it's very interesting talking to, to, to people who are thinking about smart contracts anywhere, right? Because mm-hmm. a, a bulk of it is a thing is going to run independently and it can manage scarce resources. And that's cool. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it becomes a very practical decision at some point. If you were an Ethereum developer, you've been doing, you know, developing an idea for, let's say, a year, and then you kind of are just waiting for some sort of solution and right. you're going to start, okay, well, let's see, let's check out EOS. And then, wow, okay. That's, you know, right, so. right. Some are amazed by the speed of the development, mm-hmm. right? And when we develop the EOS forum, EOS, uh, the ref- referendum contract, you can take a look in the code there. There's this test suite where we boot a chain with EOS BIOS, the thing we built, and then we do the test with EOS C, tech, 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 and all the thing runs in under one or two seconds, right? Because it's so fast. But normally, if you, you mine on Ethereum or other nodes, just the developer experience is slower. So I've seen a lot of saying, whoa, man, this is so fast. I, I compile my thing, and it can be picking up change, shipping a brand new chain, and then running unit tests on it. It's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, that is cool. So um, to recap, we got Diffuse.io. We talked about the EOSIO platform, the EOSQ block explorer, right. um, the referendum beta. I mean, you guys, are, you guys are working on kind of an amazing amount of stuff. <laughs> right. There's a lot of deep technical work. So the, what's shining out there through the Diffuse is like the point of the iceberg. Just there's a lot of deep machinery. We, we didn't want to just ship out a few APIs that we, we couldn't sustain the, the test of time, right? Mm-hmm. This thing is built to last four years. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll be able to give guarantees on that and provide solid infrastructure for anyone who wants 
good streaming, reliable, and very precise information about the blockchain. And we can put that on any chain also in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like it'd be fair to say that you guys are a very uh, deep-rooted tech team and, and you guys are put, doing a lot for the ecosystem. I know that um, I talked to a ton of block producers and I, I know that you know there's different different levels that yeah. uh, teams operate on and you guys are on that real base level doing some of the really big picture tough problems. Right, so, right, right, right. Yeah, so I, I mean, hope that continues to get noticed like it is. I'm sure it will. You guys are uh, Thank doing you. big things. Yeah. Where's where's the best place for people to find you? Um, so we have a channel on, on Telegram. That's the, I guess it, Telegram was Dan Larimer's favorite chat program. That's why we're all there. The community's yeah. all there. So we awesome. Moved. So we have an EOS Canada channel or, um, or a Diffuse IO channel. You can come and join us. Uh, and check the website. You have the links over there. Yeah, okay. that's where we'll be the most responsive. Okay, Telegram website, the Diffuse channel. All right, yep. perfect. I'll share those links, uh, my EOS friends, in the show notes. And um, cool. Yeah, and I don't really have any announcements. I've been announcing the hackathon and the scaling blockchain thing for so long that uh, you know that's kind of my pattern at this point. But that's not happening. So, um, welcome to the EOS podcast and farewell. And uh, thanks for listening, guys. And we'll we'll come back soon. So, cheers. It was good to speak with you, Alex. Thank you very much. I appreciate. It. The money is not the prime asset in life. Time is, and uh, your time is. Just... Come along.